Well, now Christ is coming back and the nations are enraged and you would think they would wake up and say, look, Jesus is Lord. We got to get right. What do they do? They gather together and they plan a war against the Messiah. We'll study it. It's called the Battle of the Armageddon. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a message entitled The New World Order, in which Dr. Brogy is looking at the seventh trumpet judgment listed in chapter 11 of the Revelation. Let's rejoin him as he begins reading from verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Now remember the 24 elders Hold your finger here and go back to Revelation 4.1. I know there's some slides, but it will be helpful to you if you literally turn back. If you don't bring a Bible, there's no wonder you can't understand what I'm doing. (laughs) Without a Bible in your hands, you'll get 50% less out of any sermon. And I see some of you without a Bible. Bring a Bible. If you don't have one, come see me. We'll get you a Bible. Revelation 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So there's this open door in heaven, which we saw was the rapture of the church. Revelation 2 and 3 concerns seven churches. After these things, after the church age, the door is opened and the church is caught up into heaven and they're never mentioned again until they come back with Jesus in the 19th chapter. And of course, God is fulfilling a promise that he made. Remember, if you turn back another page or it's across the page in my Bible to Revelation 3.10, Revelation 3.10, Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, because you have kept the word of my perseverance a fruit that you are genuine born-again believers, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. There's an hour of testing that is going to come upon the whole world. Question, has there ever been in the history of man an hour of testing that has come all the way across planet earth? Never. But Jesus said it's going to happen. God is going to literally fulfill this prophecy. And he says that I will keep you from, I will take you out from, some of your English Bibles say. He does not say, I will keep you through this hour of testing. He doesn't say, I will keep you in the midst of this hour of testing. He could have used two different pronouns inspired by the Spirit of God if he had intended that. But that's not what he says. I will take you out of this hour of testing, which, by the way, would be totally meaningless to the church at Philadelphia because all those members have been dead for 2,000 plus years. But this is not simply what he says to the church at Philadelphia. He says, this is what the Spirit says to the churches, not just the church at Philadelphia, but the church that meets here in Beaufort, South Carolina this morning. Again, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Now look at verse four of chapter four. Around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. By the way, there are three visions of the throne room in the Bible, in the Revelation, in Isaiah and in Daniel. The throne room um, visions given by to Isaiah and Daniel are identical. 
In fact, they're identical to John with one exception. There's no 24 elders in the Revelation. Everything else is there, but not the 24 elders. Why? Number one, the church didn't exist in Daniel or Isaiah's day. I will build my church. When was the church born? On the day of Pentecost. And he has taken the church up into heaven through that open door. And now the 24 elders are there. Now, if you remember, this was the first time we were introduced to the 24 elders. These are not 24 angels. That's how some who try to say the church has replaced Israel, God's done with the Jew. And by the way, that is becoming so popular, and it's planting a spirit of antagonism against Israel. It really is. These teachers, who I think are well-meaning, but whether they know it or not, the support that has come to Israel traditionally from Bible-believing Christians is beginning to diminish. And that's sad to me, but I know ultimately all the nations of the world. Why does our government stand for Israel? Because of the evangelicals who are there saying, stand for Israel. I was there with a hundred pastors in the East Room of the White House, and we said to George Bush, number two, stand with Israel. That number is shrinking. It is diminishing. And we're beginning to lose our footing. I thank God that our current president appears to stand for Israel. I hope he will stay there and he will not vacillate. These are not 24 angels. Angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service to those who will inherit salvation. Angels don't sit on thrones. God's church does. If we rule, live for him, we will reign with him, Paul tells us. And so these are 24 presbyteros. We got our word Presbyterian. I, I heard true story about this Presbyterian lady who is speaking to her 10 and 11 year old children on the book of Revelation. And she said right here in Revelation 4, 24 elders. It's the Greek word presbyteros. We get our word Presbyterian from that. Well, she taught Revelation that day and the little girl goes home with her mom and mom says, well, honey, what did you learn in church today? Well, I learned there'd only be 24 Presbyterians in heaven. <laughs> well, I'm not sure there'll be that many, but in either case, <laughs> now that I've alienated all the Presbyterians, uh, listen, these are not angels. These, this is the garment of the church. They have white garments on, as Jesus encouraged the church at Laodicea to get from him. They have crowns on their head because God rewards us with crowns, and we sit on thrones. And we saw earlier in our study that the number 24 was a representative number, as this slide shows. For instance, in 1 Chronicles 24, the 24 officers of the sanctuary represented 24 divisions of Levitical priests. Or in 1 Chronicles 25, the 24 division uh, of the singers in the temple represented 24 mass choirs. And so it's a representative number. And here the 24 elders represent the body of Christ that is not destined for wrath, but that has been caught up into heaven. This is not Israel. This is not angel. Israel. Some say, well, this must be Israel. These are, these are 24 Jewish 
Jewish people who are representative of the Jews. No, it's not Israel. Israel, for the most part, is unbelief. The function of the tribulation is to bring Israel to faith, and God is going to pull that off. Now, look at this hymn of worship that they sing, verse 17. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Notice they praise God for three realities that we should pray God for. Number one, He's supreme. He's called the Almighty. By the way, do you know who else is called the Almighty in Scripture? The one who holds all things in His hand, which is what the word means. Jesus is called the Almighty. God the Father is called the Almighty, and Yeshua is called the Almighty. We read that in Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. How can God the Father and God the Son both be called the Almighty? Because they are equal. I and the Father are one. To see me is to see the Father. And the Scripture designates Jesus in Revelation 1.8 as the one who is and who was and who is to come. By the way, that same description is given of the Father in Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, Lord God the Almighty who is, who, uh, who was, who is, and who is to come. Same designation given equally to the Father and given equally to the Son. And so here in 1117, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were. Please notice, it's a little different. It does not say who was and who is and who is to come, but now it simply says who are and who were. Why? Because he's come back. That's what he's picturing for us. The return of Jesus from heaven where the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. Now he's going to pause and he's going to show us how it happens and the chapters that will follow. Listen, you say, well, wait a minute. This appears to be the Father in this verse. We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty. Who's coming back, the Father or the Son? Both are. Listen, you can't cut up the members of the Godhead. On the one hand, the Scripture says that uh, God so loved the world, He gave. Well, God the Father didn't die on a cross. His Son did. I heard Phil Donahue years ago arguing with Jerry Falwell on national TV. He said, well, if God the Father really loved the world, why didn't He get out of heaven and die on a cross? He just gave His Son. Because the members of the Godhead are so inseparable that Paul can say God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is a demonstration of the Father's love. Why? Because the members of the Godhead are inseparable. For God to give of his Son was to give of himself. For Jesus to come back is for the Father, and we will see as well for the Spirit to come back. He reigns supreme, but notice he judges righteously. Verse 18, and the nations were enraged with your, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. Again, I want you to see this. The nations are enraged. What are they so mad about? What are they so angry about? Certainly God's been good to them, has he not? Yes, even to the pagans, utter idolaters at Lystra, Paul could say that God did not leave you without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, your Father who's in heaven causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Listen, God has shown his goodness to us and the supreme demonstration of that goodness is when he made a provision for our sin. And the only reason he hasn't come back yet is not because the Lord is slow about his promise, but he's not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so in Psalm 2, the psalmist King David writes, why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the world hates God. And by extension, they often hate us. Why? Because we have moral absolutes. They think we are narrow-minded when we say it's not a woman's right to choose to exterminate a baby in her womb. And it's not us for us to say that you can change your sexual identity. We saw this week in the confirmation hearing, the great senator from the state of New Jersey asking a man who I'm not sure if he's born again or not, but I know he has moral standards applying for secretary of state. And it's interesting because at least six of our president's uh, not board members, but cabinet members are born again believers. Some think more, but I know at least six, not to mention our vice president is born again. Maybe this guy isn't. So the Senator Booker quotes the potential secretary of state I'm not sure what this has to be do with being Secretary of State. You said, and he quotes him, that homosexuality is a perversion. You believe homosexuality is a perversion? Mike Pompey says, look, I will treat everyone, whatever they are, justly and fairly under the law. That's not my question. Do you believe homosexuality is a perversion? That's what you said Mr. Pompey, what say you now? Someone asked me, what would you say, Pastor? I would have come back to Corey and I would have said, Sir, do you believe it's a perversion for a human to have an intimate relationship with an animal? The Bible calls it bestiality. My guess is, of course, it's a perversion. Why is it a perversion? Why is it a perversion for a man to have ten wives if he wants ten? Why is it a perversion for a man to have a relationship with his dog if he wants to? Because God Almighty says it's a perversion. But you see, they hate our moral absolutes. They think we're narrow-minded. They think we're short-sighted. The nations are in an uproar. Let us tear God's fetters apart. Let us live the way we want to live. The truth of the matter is the nations are going to see someday how wrong they are. And here we read, the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. We saw last week in verses 9 and 10, if you remember, rejoicing, celebration, people exchanging gifts, because God's two men who preached the gospel are dead there in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. But then they go from great celebration to total shock when God brings them back to life and carries them up into heaven. 
Well, now Christ is coming back and the nations are enraged and you would think they would wake up and say, look, Jesus is Lord, we got to get right. What do they do? They gather together and they plan a war against the Messiah. We'll study it. It's called the Battle of the Armageddon. Listen, God's wrath is predictable. It's never whimsical. He doesn't fly off the handle. It is always, always, always a response to his hatred for sin. But he burned his wrath out in a substitute if men would come to Jesus. They praise him because he reigns. They praise him because he judges righteously. Notice also, they praise him because he rewards graciously. Again in verse 18, and the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great. Remember, we're going to see there are a number of resurrections in what we call the first resurrection. There's the first death, there's the second death. Does the first death take place all at once? No, it takes place over the course of time where people die each day like my neighbor did yesterday. People die over the course of time. But the second death, in a moment's time, when all of the unbelieving losses we'll see will be cast into the lake of hell. Even so, the first resurrection, you could call the first resurrection program, it doesn't happen all at once. It happens in a number of stages. And at the end of the seven years, after the church has been raptured, all the Old Testament saints will be raised. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, Ezekiel, Malachi, they're all come out of the grave. And it's time now for them to be rewarded. He's referring here to the Old Testament saints. Look, every time, as we'll see, you see the word saint. Don't think church, because there's three usages in the New Testament. Old Testament saints, church saints, and coming future tribulation saints. So the Old Testament saints are raised. We've already been judged. When will we be judged? The moment you are translated from earth up into heaven, as a Christian, you will experience a judgment, not for sin. That's been settled. So the scripture can say you've passed out of judgment into life. He that believes in him is not judged, but there is the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and God will evaluate you not over your sin, but over your service. He's going to see how faithfully you served his local church. And some of us come and we criticize year after year after year. All we can do is find out what's wrong with the church. And if it's not this church, it's the church we came from and the one before. And God will look at your service. And he'll see if you love the things that he loved. And some of us will have deep regrets at the judgment seat of Christ when we see how foolishly we invested our lives. But this is the time of resurrection for Old Testament saints where they will be rewarded. And notice, God is bringing a reward to bless those who are believers in him. But it also indicates that there is coming a time to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, by destroy, the Bible does not mean annihilationism. And unfortunately, the doctrine of eternal retribution, which we'll study in the 14th chapter and again in the 20th chapter, has taken a back row seat in evangelicalism because we don't want to be offensive and to drag out the doctrine of eternal wrath. But it's real. Hell is forever. 
It is dateless, timeless, endless, measureless. And when a man has been there a hundred billion years, he won't have one less second to spend there. But people in our day, because we live in a day of the seeker-sensitive church, where you got churches like Willow Creek, who still let a guy, Rob Bell, who denies eternal retribution, preach in the church and they give him a standing ovation. Why? Because they're so ignorant of the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures have not been taught. And so they take verses, evangelicals in our day, like this, those who destroy the earth. You know what they talk about? Not eternal retribution, but those who harm the environment. Look what I got just a few weeks ago. I took a picture of it with my camera. It didn't come out all that well. I get all kinds of free books because they want me to buy material. And this book that they wanted you to use in your adult Sunday school classes was called Creation Care. On the cover, it says, An Introduction for Busy Pastors, Evangelicals, and Scientists United to Protect the Creation. And of course, in it, they have a curriculum, and they suggest to me in the cover letter as a pastor that I should preach a a series of messages on creation care, that I should uh, have a statement of creation of our care for it in the church bylaws. They suggest that we as a church do an energy audit, that we eliminate all the paper bulletins that you get every week, that we initiate a recycling program, that every bulb is an LED bulb, and that you are given a bag with the church logo on it to go to the shopping store so you don't need to use the plastic bags. And they say, this is all very, very important. So we got evangelicals today talking about protecting the earth and planting trees when we should be preaching the gospel. And so what this is in a reference to, those who destroy the earth, he's not talking about those who pollute the earth. And by the way, I, I, don't, I hate pollution. I don't litter. I don't like to litter. When we go to the beach, I tell my kids we're going to leave it cleaner than we found it. And I don't dump my oil in the marsh, all right? So I'm not against destroying the environment. Please understand. But this has nothing to do with polluting the earth. These people are being judged not because they wouldn't recycle, but because they wouldn't repent and get their lives right with the Lord, which brings us finally to the assurance of God's faithfulness. See, you should come to the 11 o'clock service. It's longer. Some of you are looking at your watches, but you'll get more. Verse 19, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So as John measures both the temple and the worshipers in the temple, the scripture tells us that much like on Sinai, there's some noise, some lightning, some sounds, some peals of thunder. It's incredible what's happening. And we're, we're told here that the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple. What temple? The temple that's in heaven. You say there's a temple in heaven. Yes, there is. Do you remember what we studied in the book of Hebrews a long time ago, Hebrews 8? The earthly tabernacle was but, the Bible says, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you shall make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. The true tabernacle is in heaven. The one that was on earth was just a pattern. Yes, Cecil D. DeMille had Moses coming down with two sets of stone tablets under his arms, but he also had a set of blueprints. 
God gave him some specific specifications as to how the tabernacle, which would later become the temple, would be built. Why? Because the one on earth was a copy of the one that was in heaven. People sometimes say, do we know where the Ark of the Covenant is? I don't know where the one that was on earth is, but I can tell you where the one in heaven is. And why was the Ark important? Because it was a constant reminder to the Jews, among other things, that God is faithful, that he will keep his promises. And so in Numbers, they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place. And it was a constant reminder that God would be faithful. He would care for his people. He would keep all of his promises. And you read that with this in mind. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. Over and over in the Revelation, things are opened. A door is opened to let the saints in. Seals are opened to let the judgments out. The abyss is opened to let the demons loose. And here, a door is opened once again in the temple of God. God is seen because God is showing his faithfulness. And those living in this future time who will read this will take great comfort in the symbol of the ark that's in heaven. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, the tabernacle in heaven reminds us that God is faithful to all of his promises. Now, there are a number of passages that sometimes Christians know, but not always in their context. Like a lot of Christians have Psalm 23 memorized, but Psalm 23 in its context is a trilogy of Psalms. Psalm 22 is the crucifixion. Psalm 23 is not the shepherd's, uh, is, deals with the care of the Lord, the shepherd's care. So you have the, the Savior's cross in the 22nd chapter. You have the shepherd's care in the 23rd chapter. But in the 24th chapter, you have the Savior's crown. It's a trilogy. They're beautiful to read together as the Jews did. In 1 Corinthians 13, a lot of you have the love chapter memorized. But it's in the context of spiritual gifts. That we are to exercise our spiritual gifts in love. But then most of us have at least the end verses of chapter 8 memorized. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. But the context is illustrated with chapters 9, 10, and 11. That God loved Israel with an everlasting love and he has not forsaken them. Do you remember what Gabriel said to Mary? And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Then Gabriel gave Mary a promise, and he, Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That didn't happen at the first coming, but it is going to happen when Jesus comes to rule and reign. Why? Because God keeps all of his promises. Second, we learn that God is in charge of this world. He is in charge of everything. If you remember in Revelation 6, the world is coming in tune. They recognize, where is this wrath coming from? Where are these seals dropping from? And they say this, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said in the mountains and in the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They recognize the judgments that are coming are from God Almighty, specifically from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the end of the tribulation. We just read it five times over. The kingdoms or the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. What does that tell me? It tells me that the rulers of this earth who are kicking against God's sovereign rule are going to fall prostrate 
in obedience to his rule. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord before they are forever removed from God's eternal kingdom. What does this do for me as a pastor, as a Christian? It gives me encouragement because I look around and this world is a mess. And the evil of our world just seems to be growing and multiplying. But I know that God is on his throne, that he is in control, that the one who put this thing into existence is going to end it perfectly under his timetable. And if you're not ready for his coming, you need to be ready because it could happen sooner than many of us realize. Tomorrow we move into chapter 12 of the Revelation and a message entitled, The Woman and the Red Dragon. Join us then as we search the scriptures. Oh,